I spent a lot of time uh, during my thesis basically designing and developing implantable probes for the brain. So these are little tiny catheters that you can implant into the brain. And uh, the innovation there was how do we make these catheters smaller? How do we make them less invasive? And so just to give you a context of size, um, the catheters we were making are probably about the same size of, as a single strand of hair. And that you could basically take that and you would uh, have to drill a little hole in the skull and then you'd be able to put these catheters in. And we showed how you can sort of push drugs through them. You can use them for electrical interfacing with different neurons in the brain. This is Real Pharma, your podcast for real conversations with pharma pathfinders. In every episode, you will hear from an industry insider who has a story to share that goes beyond the headlines. No spin, no sacred cows, no hidden agendas, just stories and the people behind them. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Nari O oh and Ian Wint. Welcome to today's episode. We are thrilled to introduce Dr. Khalil Ramadi, a trailblazing figure in the dynamic field of bioengineering. He's currently an assistant professor at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Dr. Ramadi is a TED Fellow, was recognized by MIT Technology Review as an innovator under 35, and was on the Forbes Middle East 30 under 30 list in 2023. His work is at the intersection of technology and biology, where he leads groundbreaking research in biomedical engineering. Dr. Ramadi's expertise lies in developing innovative medical devices and technologies that have the potential to transform healthcare delivery and patient outcomes. With a master's and PhD in bioengineering from MIT, Dr. Ramadi's research spans various aspects of health technology, including minimally invasive diagnostic and therapeutic tools and the application of nanotechnology in medicine. And his work is not just confined to the lab. It extends into real-world applications, aiming to bridge the gap between engineering and medicine. As a leading thought leader in bioengineering, his insights promise to offer us a glimpse into the future of medical technology and its impact on healthcare. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ramadi. Nari, thank you so much. Yes, welcome, and, and thanks for making some time. Dr. Ramadi's on the other side of the world from us right now in, in Abu Dhabi. You know, I thought um, it would be interesting to just share maybe a couple of, of headlines that I came across as I'm trying to learn a little bit more about bioengineering. And what struck me is just how many different applications in different areas the science seems to be heading. Bioengineering, as I'm sure you'll help us understand, is not just one thing. Maybe I could share a couple of these just, you know, kind of to set the stage, I think, for our audience a little bit and, and for something uh, for you to be able to respond to as, as we progress through our, our conversation. But just last week, there was actually an article that had a pretty interesting title, I thought. It says, uh, bladder tumors reduced by 90% using nanorobots, which described work out of the Institute of Bioengineering in Catalonia. Now, essentially, they had created nanomachines that attack bladder tumors with a radioisotope that they carry on their surface, uh, which precisely targets that tumor. So very impressive work and, and something certainly most of us don't think of as we're thinking about drug delivery or eradicating a tumor in a patient. And that same week, Medriva published an article titled Engineering New Dawn, Yeast That Harnesses Energy from Light, which means that yeast has now apparently joined the ranks of other uh, phototrophs which are organisms that manufacture their own food from light. So there's a whole variety of potential applications here, but I think this is the first uh, that we've been able to do this with yeast in particular. And then last year, SciTech Daily published an article titled Rapid Disease Diagnosis. So bioengineering breakthrough boosts DNA detection sensitivity by 100x, uh, which highlighted a huge leap forward in the sensitivity of DNA detection at really no additional cost. So these are three very different areas when you think about nanorobots and then you think about yeast now uh, using light as energy and then you think about you know DNA detection, but all the common thread here maybe is, is bioengineering. And this is what I would really hope we'll be able to explore uh, during this discussion. I know you have your areas of expertise that we're gonna dive into a little bit deeper, but I thought that was just interesting to kind of set the stage for the audience. Yes, and following up on that, I was going to ask you, Dr. Ramadi, since bioengineering seems to really encompass a lot of different areas, can you explain to us a little bit maybe how you would explain it to a layperson and what areas 
may have been the focus in the past and where we're going in the present and the future? Yeah, it's a, it's, you know, it's a surprisingly complicated question, to be honest. This is, uh, you know, the answer you get will depend on who you ask. Um, and this is something that I sometimes chat with a lot of potential students about, uh, where they also come to me with, with similar questions of, well, what exactly is this field? What kind of work can I do? And I mean, honestly, at this point, I think the field has evolved enough that I would define it as any sort of tinkering with biology or physiology. And I think to, to Ian's point, this is something that really has evolved over time. I think if you look classically at what the field of bioengineering or perhaps biomedical engineering uh, was focused on, it was building hardware tools for, um, for the clinic. So how do you build an MRI machine? How does MRI work? How do CT scans work? All really important tools, uh, all really important technologies that have some groundbreaking physics behind them. Uh, but I think traditionally, if you went back some decades and asked people, do you want to be a bioengineer or biomedical engineer? Those are the sort of things they were thinking about. I think as we sort of progressed, um, the, the, I would say the slightly, I don't want to call it more cutting edge, but I would say the smaller definition of it uh, perhaps shifted to thinking more about uh, devices, right? So thinking about implantable pacemakers, um, deep brain stimulation devices, uh, orthotics, and sort of artificial implants. So you started getting towards something that we actually are putting inside the body as opposed to just applying from outside. And then I think what we're really seeing is this convergence where you have a lot of what otherwise would be the realm of just pure biology also starting to be incorporated in bioengineering. But I think Ian listed some fantastic examples of as well. Thank you. That was a really great introduction. And we look forward to diving deeper into some of the areas that you mentioned. And just to pick up on something you already mentioned, you get questions from you know students on what is this and, and what area should I focus on? I think maybe a good place to start is to understand a little bit about, about your journey into bioengineering. So why bioengineering? And then, and then for you, and then maybe more specifically, what inspired you to focus on uh, neuromodulation and ingestible electronics, which we definitely want to talk more about? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a you know, I, I really like the story because I feel like it epitomizes how people end up in bioengineering, which is usually not, you know, knowing when you're four years old that you wanted to be a bioengineer. Um, I, uh, I, in high school, I really loved planes, and so I really wanted to become an aerospace engineer. I joked that in a parallel life, I would have been a pilot. Um, and then basically some of the, some of my mentors at the time in school, some of my teachers were saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you should do mechanical engineering just instead of aerospace, because if not, you're just going to work for Airbus or Boeing, right? Those are your two, basically, uh, your things like keep your, keep your options open, do, do some mechanical. And so I did, I did make it for started off as a mechanical engineering student and, uh, and then slowly basically found my way back to biology. And I, remember just kind of picking up one, I think it was Nature, in the library as a sophomore, uh, just because the cover looked interesting. And I, you know, I started reading a little bit. I was like, well, I kind of missed the biology. And so that's sort of how the mechanical cascaded back towards, uh, towards biology and towards bioengineering. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it really wasn't an intentional plan. I think the beauty of bioengineering that I've come to really appreciate is that you... Uh, are a citizen of multiple worlds, which is nice because you get to learn a lot from people who know more about those respective words. You learn from mechanical engineers, you learn from chemists, uh, you learn from biologists. And I joke that we also have this unique privilege of always being able to sound stupid because we are that. So we can always ask people things that we don't know and we're like, sorry, it's because I'm a bioengineer. <laughs> Forgive me, right? Um, but I think it makes for some really interesting meshing of ideas. How does that go over though? That, that, that's kind of an interesting response that uh, your default is maybe we don't know. I don't know if that's your default, if that's a fair way to say it, but I mean, where does that come from? Help us understand that, that sounds almost like an inside joke among bioengineers. Help us understand that. <laughs> well, I mean, because I think part of it is, so I'll give you an example, right? You, you go to the biomedical engineering society conference every year. And you will find, you know, thousands on thousands of 
obviously students and basically by engineers. But I would say that the breadth of research that is being presented, you might as well, you know, be jamming 10 different conferences in one place because of how different everything is. And so this assumption that we as bioengineers have a common language, I think is, let's just say it's improving, but it definitely is a field in flux where the very definitions of what should we include in the field and what should we not are still evolving and active areas of conversation. So that, you know, this question that you asked of, is why I said that what you asked uh, in terms of defining bioengineering was a loaded question, because it really is a loaded question. Uh, and the answer you get will depend on people. So, you know, I, I, I do stand by the, the, the comment that we get away with pretending like we're not experts or anything because we simply aren't. And so I, I think it depends on what we want to do. From my perspective, if we want to sort of challenge the status quo by improving and innovating in specific spaces, I think the non-expert perspective is a really valuable one to bring to the table. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's uh, not not necessarily a, a disadvantage. First of all, you help to define the field and how it evolves. And second, you can always play the card. I'm, I'm really just a bioengineer. I know a little <laughs> bit of everything, but you know, don't if I don't know something, then this is the way it is. And I, I think you're being very humble here, and by the way, but it sounds like a almost like a, a playground where you can experiment in many different directions. Oh, I think that totally it is. Like, I, I, that's exactly what it is. I mean, if you sort of, uh, if you, you know, sit in on any of our lab meetings, like the number of tangents we go on of just crazy ideas and exploring how we might solve a specific problem, um, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I do think it's like a playground. And then at some point we have to come back to reality and see what is feasible to design and implement. But we do start off probably just think, treating it like a little sandbox. That sounds great. So your focus is on neuromodulation and ingestible electronics, right? Yes. Among probably many other things. So what led you to these particular areas? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about what the, those areas actually mean and what some of the applications are? And more broadly, what do you currently do in your role at NYU Abu Dhabi? Sure. Yeah. So... Uh, the, my interest in the brain sort of started many years ago. I think this was something that I observed around me that the prevalence of, of neurodegenerative disorders of Alzheimer's of Parkinson's is, you know, basically skyrocketing. That's a trend that we're going to continue. I think everybody, myself included, has had family members affected by these, by these terrible conditions. And you, you know, unfortunately see the really limited toolkit that we have to treat, mitigate, forget cure, um, really anything for, for these patients. And so I think that was sort of a very high level interest in the brain that I started pursuing during my PhD thesis. I said, I want to sort of work on improving brain technologies. And so I spent a lot of time uh, during my thesis, basically designing and developing implantable probes for the brain. So these are little tiny catheters that you can implant into the brain. And uh, the innovation there was how do we make these catheters smaller? How do we make them less invasive? And so just to give you a context of size, um, the catheters we were making are probably about the same size of, as a single strand of hair. And that you could basically take that and you would uh, have to drill a little hole in the skull and then you'd be able to put these catheters in. And really, that was the main sticking point for me. Like, as much as these catheters were cool to design, we showed how you can sort of push drugs through them. You can use them for electrical interfacing with different neurons in the brain. Every time I spoke with anybody, just colleagues or friends or family, and said, oh, by the way, you know, look how small they are. Like, would you guys ever get this? And if it was therapy, the answer would be like, sure. But beyond that, this bar that you have to meet because of the invasiveness where you have to actually penetrate the skull was just really high. And so that was, you know, partly in my mind towards the end of my PhD on thinking about what are different ways that we can do neuromodulation that is precise, but also non-invasive. And I guess for context, one other thing I should mention is that this is a, this is by no means a unique insight into the space of neuromodulation. I think if you look at other neuromodulation techniques, this is fundamentally the trade-off that we have. We have techniques that have been around for decades, for example, D 
deep brain stimulation. These are like chopstick size electrodes that we implant into the brain. They uh, are left implanted for you know more than a decade, uh, and they've actually been shown to be pretty useful at relieving motor symptoms for Parkinson's disease, for example. And those are great because they go directly where you want them to go in the brain. You can control when they turn on or off, uh, but they are invasive, right? And at the other extreme, you have things that are completely non-invasive. Uh, so, for example, one of the more popular recent ones has been auricular vagus nerve stimulation. Uh, the vagus nerve is this uh, big uh, nerve that carries a whole bundle of neurons between the brain and the periphery. And what people are looking at vagus nerve stimulation for is a whole bunch of different uh, diseases, including uh, some mental health, epilepsy, uh, inflammation, and the idea is that if you stimulate the auricular branch, which is in the ear, that you can non-invasively stimulate the vagus. There you are really good on the uh, non-invasive side because you actually don't have to penetrate the skin. You can kind of wear it like an earphone, think of it that way. Uh, but at the same time, you end up indiscriminately firing all the different neurons that are in the vagus nerve, which pretty much go everywhere in the body. So again, this fundamental trade-off between precision as well as invasiveness. So this is sort of where some of our thinking has come in. And something that I shifted to following my PhD was really thinking about, well, maybe we can use the GI tract as this unique organ that has all these millions of neurons across it as a way to be able to latch on specifically to different neurons and different neuronal endings in different parts of the tract while still keeping things non-invasive. Essentially, considering that mouth to rectum is kind of outside the body unless you start penetrating the GI tract. So that's sort of the, the, the thought process of why the brain and then moving forward a little bit, why looking into ingestible electronics for us. I find that really fascinating because we call the gut the second brain as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, maybe it's not really that far-fetched to, to see these two words in the same sentence. And I think doing a little bit of research before this podcast, I thought it was really interesting also, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more, neuromodulation. I, I do think the first thought is brain, as you just described, but it goes much further than that. And, and you've spoken about that. I would really love to hear more about what other applications you research in that field. I think for neuromodulation, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting word. Um, and I think the, we, we are exposed to neuromodulation every single day of our lives, right? You walk by a chocolate store, you smell the chocolate, you're sort of tempted to go inside to eat chocolate. The reason why you feel that way is because you, one, have a positive association with the smell, and that association was made because of prior experiences where you tasted chocolate after having smelt it, and you enjoyed it. Why did you enjoy the chocolate? Because it has specific things in it that trigger specific receptors in your mouth as well as in your gut that basically send this positive feedback to the brain, making you feel good after you eat it. So this is like even that simple task of smelling something and wanting to go and grab it so you can eat it is basically multiple levels of neuromodulation being built on each other. And really, I, you know, I, I, I like to say that neuromodulation is something that marketers have figured out a lot better than scientists have, right? Like all those studies about how many different types of ketchup should you put so that you can optimize choice and people are more likely to buy it. What's the optimal size? What are the pricings that you should put on each one? Like it very quickly becomes economics too. Um, so, I mean, anyway, we're, we're constantly exposed. The world basically is, uh, is throwing neuromodulation signals around us. It's how we interact with the world. Um, in terms of, you know, how we're thinking about it, I think the really cool thing about the nervous system is that it is essentially this network of roads that crisscross basically every tissue in our body. And it is also fairly unique in that the primary language by which it communicates is electricity as opposed to pumping fluids around. So that means that, well, one, if you can just at least 
high level thinking about the approach, if you can use this network of roads, if you can target specific zaps of electricity to you know, go on and off this network at specific sites, then you can start targeting individual types of tissues, uh, both in terms of the type of tissue as well as the location around the body in a relatively less invasive way. So, you know, to me, the nervous system is this um, template that we can use to target different areas of the body in a less invasive way. Um, and so starting off with ingestible electronics for the gut there, I mean, a lot of the neurons in the gut are responsible for regulating how uh, we feel after and before we eat. So regulating hunger, regulating digestion, regulating metabolism with what we do, uh, what happens in our body after those uh, those nutrients are absorbed. And so we're looking at things like obesity, eating disorders, as well as things like diabetes for metabolic disease uh, in terms of the diseases of interest, I would say, that we're we're looking at. You know, some of your earlier comments describing the brain catheters being as small as, I think, a human hair, you know, obviously impressive technology. But one of the things it kind of made me think of was Neuralink, another topic that ends up being in the news and is just a, a consumer of that news. It's hard to know exactly how to interpret what's going on there. But I wonder, do you have an opinion on, on the work Neuralink does? How does it relate to, to some of the work that you're doing, if it does at all? Yeah, Neuralink is doing some really cool stuff. Um, I think the key innovation they have brought is, from a technological standpoint, is the ability to insert these really small catheters reliably. I think that, you know, if, if you look at the technology, as far as what I've seen at least, of the catheters and implants they're using, that has been reported in some way in literature for some years now. Perhaps also as, an, as a company, they are doing better on reliability. That could be part of it. Have they gone to humans or is it still in monkeys? I think they are still recruiting. For, I don't know if they, I think they got the green light to do human trials. I think they have to recruit patients. That's all I've heard. Okay. But I think they've done monkeys and pigs. I think those are the two. So, I mean, the technology they have is really cool for implanting them. Uh, I think something we shouldn't also eliminate is the fact that they have significantly enhanced public interest in neurotechnology, which is something we have to give them some credit for. Now, I think the really interesting question with there is going to be what exactly they use it for. Because I know they're going for a not necessarily therapeutic application, but rather let's augment human capabilities by connecting it to the Brit, to like computers. And I think that, you know, my God, neuroethicists must be having a field day there because that's going to be a really interesting discussion on, you know, is this even ethical to do? Who would do it? What What's the bar that we use in terms of enhancing capabilities? Like that, that's going to be a whole evolving discussion. That's the question I always think about. And then, you know, of course, Elon Musk seems to have a pretty good business track record here. So I'm not questioning his judgment, but I always wondered why they're going towards kind of this, this idea of human enhancement, let's say, versus trying to address unmet medical needs. Um, because the pathway there, I would think, you know, you're going to get better public support and, and, and from an ethical, you know, bioethicist perspective, you're probably going to have an easier time with your IRBs to do these studies because you're solving a real problem and it's easier to come to terms with the trade-offs between risk and benefit, right? If you're just going after kind of human enhancement, that you're assuming a lot of risk with, it's hard to argue with what the clinical benefit is. Maybe there's none. It might be just something that allows you to have a better memory, you know, but your memory is not impaired. So why, why take on that risk? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I haven't heard a convincing answer one way or the other. My sense is that one, it's probably more quote unquote cutting edge, right? I feel like if you, if you sort of have to pitch it as the future, um, and two is maybe just a bigger market in terms of more people. But I, I don't know. This is like, you know, this question of like bigger market, like we literally, uh, I was sitting with some people over the weekend and then uh, this came up. And I was like, well, I don't know, like, you know, if, if I told you I had to implant something in your brain, it does require a hole in the skull for you to, you know, read at 2x the speed. Would you do it? And most people are like, eh, I don't know. And I was like, all right, 5x, right? Like you could literally finish a novel in like 10 minutes. And they're like, well, you know, and, and so you can start seeing what that, what that balance is. Like, I, I don't know what you both think, but like, I think whether it's like reading faster, whether it's running faster and physical capabilities, whether it's concentrating better, right? 
doing, you know, writing a paper in an hour instead of having it take a week. So I, I, it's, it's, it is interesting to, to think about how we might at some point probably regulate how, how this happens. I think it is a question of, do you do something because you can do it? And what are potentially the long-term consequences? That's always the question because we don't know that yet. And by the time we know them, sometimes it's a little bit too late to make certain decisions or, or change direction. But you also mentioned something that's maybe not quite as controversial as what we just discussed. So in terms of a therapeutic application, you talked about gut and and metabolic maybe application. So obviously a huge topic right now is GLP-1s and the impact on obesity, diabetes, metabolic diseases, and, and, and so on and so forth. Do you see a role of neuromodulation as a competitor or as a, a partner in, in some of these discussions with current modalities at all? I mean, I'll go one step further and make the argument that you could probably classify GLP-1 agonists as a sort of neuromodulation. I think, you know, traditionally we tended to divide uh, what is a neuro, neurological versus a endocrine or hormonal function in the gut. Uh, I think that that line has become a lot more blurry. And I wouldn't be surprised if we'll see further blurring of it where things that we thought were pure hormones also act as neurotransmitters. Things that we thought were pure neurotransmitters like serotonin actually hang out in the blood and act hormonally. So I would say that that, that line is a bit fuzzy. And if you wanted to be generous, you could classify those as neuromodulation as well. Um, I think the GLP-1 agonists, I mean, obviously have been a complete game changer for people who need them, right? For people who have uh, significant obesity that cannot otherwise be reduced as an alternative to bariatric surgery. I think that is, you know, a really, really compelling clinical use. It, you know, helps the patients, prevents an irreversible procedure, saves on healthcare costs, um, while at the same time, obviously, improving overall health in the long term. Um, I, to your point about long-term consequences, I am, you know, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about what long-term consequences might be because that's simply something we don't know yet. But I like that you're cautiously optimistic instead of cautiously pessimistic. Well, you, you have to be, right? Because if not... <laughs> it's the big burden to bear. But I, I think to your point, it makes sense um, to consider GLP-1 agonists as neuromodulators because we, we don't fully understand why we see effects such as uh, maybe positive uh, impact on, on gambling or addiction or anything that really is really neuromodulation in, in in the purest sense, right? You you are changing behaviors in a way that go way beyond the metabolic impact. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, even food seeking is a behavior that you're changing, right? I mean, right. I think essentially what they're doing and from talking with, uh, with people I know who are on these, I mean, basically they, they describe it as like, well, I'm in a persistent state of low-grade nausea. And I was like, well, you know, the induction of nausea is something that is induced through the brain. Um, there's like a specific nausea center which mediates it. And even being in that state is basically the brain exerting some influence. Yeah. And people also report they just have no desire to do things they were doing before. Addictive behaviors, uh, eating food, gambling, smoking. Yeah. So it's a really fascinating topic beyond the focus on diabetes or, or weight. The next application we'll hear, you think, is, uh, is addiction. I mean, anything, like, you know, probably cessation of smoking. I don't know. Because it is, like, at some point, all these circuits overlap. I am curious. Right. I think that's what we're looking at right now. We'll just put it in the water. It'll cure everything. <laughs> <laughs> you probably find some people in, in pharma that would agree with you on that one. Maybe our friends at, at Lily. So... <laughs> So what are some of the, you know, and this kind of goes back to some of your earlier comments around the resistance, or at least perceived resistance around having somebody drill a hole in your skull, as you mentioned. I'm sure there's other barriers to, to adoption of some of these technologies. I, I realize not all of them involve drill, drilling a hole in your skull, but what are some of the big challenges that you face? I mean, everybody has kind of the resistance to moving forward in their field, right? And, and we'd all like to progress faster than we're probably able to. 
Is it kind of some of these ethical issues and IRB kind of constraints? Is it more on the technology side that we're just haven't, you know, kind of caught up on our ideas and the technology is, is lagging that? What, what are the challenges that, that kind of frustrate you the most or you think about the most? Oh, never frustrating. Always exciting okay. to work on. Good way to say it. <laughs> I think there's a couple, right? I mean, so now if we look at sort of these ingestible electronics, so, you know, we, we at least have fewer headaches on the invasiveness side and that opens up, I think, appeal to a lot of people. I think at a very low level, there's probably a little bit of public education to, to be done in terms of redefining what we have defined as a pill for many decades now as being something that doesn't just contain drugs, but also contains little mechanical and electrical components. I think that's one. Um, I think with that probably comes um, a lot of the regulatory and, you know, like you said, IRB and clinical testing. Um, and that's something we're actively working through. Um, although, again, like that, that's the part that honestly takes up the most time and perhaps is the least exciting from an innovation perspective. Um, and then I think there's the other one, which is a little further down the line that assuming that even if these devices, as we currently have them work, you know, we knock it out of the park on, 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 uh, on clinical trials, pa- you, you know, patients feel better. There's like real concerns about how this, how this might be scaled. And so let me, let me explain a little bit. So right now, these ingestible electronics, basically what they do is they have an onboard um electrode and some batteries you swallow it it comes into contact with your stomach lining begins to basically emit little zaps of electricity the batteries give it juice for about 30 minutes and it runs out of battery and then you passively excrete it out so it's no longer doing anything but there's no physical breakdown degradation says it basically it comes out exactly the same way as it went in but the batteries have run out of battery of um, of power now I think there's a major concern, at least in my head, of how are we going to have, you know, hundreds of millions of these things being flushed down sewage systems every, uh, every day at some point, like in the future, like if we extrapolate it. I think that's a major challenge in the field in, of ingestibles is how exactly do you power these things? Uh, and so, you know, that's one area that we are interested in thinking about what does 2.0 and 3.0 of these devices look like in terms of either techniques to wirelessly power them. Can you power them, you know, from gastric acid? And people have tried different things. The issue becomes how much power can you deliver? You can probably power it enough to, you know, to light up a tiny LED for a while, but not significantly more than that. So, so I think those are the technical challenges that I think will be necessary to be overcome before this ingestible electronic world goes out of sort of the niche hospital controlled setting and into something that you can pick up at a pharmacy. And do you see some of the areas of research either that you're involved with or, or your peers may be involved with? Because remember, you know, this is mostly a pharma crowd that, that we're speaking to today. Do you see those as kind of replacing traditional medicines, I guess, for lack of a better way of describing that, or augmenting or kind of adding to the benefit of traditional treatment modalities and maybe it's not one or the other maybe it's kind of both but but you know it's one area i think a lot of us think about you know are in the future are pharma companies as we think of them today going to be more like a bioengineering company and and whatever that might mean and i realize you know you make the argument that some of the glp1s you can make that argument that they're already there so i guess maybe we already have some of that um, kind of creeping into the to the traditional pharma space but if you could look ahead to you know ten or fifteen or twenty years, whatever time frame you think is appropriate, what is pharma going to look like as it starts to embrace uh, bioengineering, or are these going to be just separate companies? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. You know, I can't, I you know, and it's interesting also how you bring that because if you look historically, pharma companies were also you know chemical companies, and that sort of transitioned into becoming pharma. So yeah, that's actually you know I've never really characterized it that way, but I think. Fast forwarding a couple of decades, probably if pharma companies want to sort of remain innovative in terms of incorporating new technologies, that yes, they may look more like what we would maybe then call bioengineering companies and no longer pharma. Um, I think to your point of where do these technologies like these ingestibles come into play, I think it's a new tool in our toolkit. 
I, I don't think they are trying to supplement anything that we can necessarily accomplish with drugs. Uh, each will have their own, obviously, drawbacks in terms of how you can use them. Um, I guess one open and interesting question would be how you can use them in combination and augment the function of each other. And that's certainly something that, you know, down the line would be, would be kind of cool to look at. Another question I have, Dr. Ramadi, when we have technological advances, we often at some point have to ask ourselves, how do we make sure that we provide access to these innovations to as many people as possible? And that means geographically or in terms of infrastructure. So the people who need or would benefit from these innovations, is there a realistic chance that they can access them? Is that something that comes up in your work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, access, I think, is always something that we try to keep in our mind as we approach a problem. I think, and there's like a couple of different reasons why access might be issues, whether it is logistics and physical access, it might be sort of a monetary and financial limitation. And, you know, we by no means try to solve all these problems in lab, but I think this is where having adequate partners on board, I think, really uh, helped this, um, even if it's just being informed about what the problem is initially uh, before we try to go out and solve it. So in terms of access for ingestibles, I think part of what I described about improving the technology to a point where you can sort of have these be shelf stable have them be able to be shipped without, you know, having to just suddenly connect the battery right before you administer it, have it be able to be broken down uh, before being excreted as opposed to collected and then disposed through specialized waste streams. I mean, I think that's really the, the major one we think of in this case, in terms of how do we make sure that there's equity in access and not obviously causing off-target effects just in the environment in which the people taking these devices are living. You know, you're all hitting on fantastic points where this is all really concerning stuff with medicine when you like sort of see headlines. There was one headline I saw yesterday about Americans rationing insulin. And I was like, man, this is, this is like, you know, five, six, actually, what are we? Yeah, we're like 50, 60 years past and this is still sort of happening. And I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a slightly different hat that I wear. Sometimes I'm part of an innovation working group with a few other faculty, like one of the few engineers there. Um, but just thinking about how do you actually solve some of these really intractable, or forget solve, solve is too ambitious. How do you try to partially address some of these really intractable problems in our society? Yeah, I think something we struggle with, certainly on the, on the pharma side, and you know, arguably the drugs that, that we're developing and manufacturing in most cases are pretty scalable, right? And, and you know, a lot of the, the access issues are in some ways kind of artificially imposed because we're protecting IP, we're trying to maintain high prices to maximize value within a market and the actual cost of goods, the cost of that pill might literally be pennies, but, you know, you have to recoup your R&D. That's a, another discussion for another day. But your technologies the cogs might be higher. The cost of goods might, might be very much higher. They're more complex machines, let's say. And, you know, it might be more difficult to find those economies of scale to get prices down where a broader, let's say the majority, let's say of the world population could potentially have access to that. I think that's, that's something that's going to be a challenge for you guys, for sure. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think definitely a scalable version looks very different than the, than the ones now. I, I agree with you. Yeah. So just to make this more tangible, because you described this device here a few minutes ago where, you know, you ingest this little pill and it's battery powered and it sits in your gut somewhere and, and delivers electrical signals, uh, hopefully in the right place at the right time. Again, to make that more tangible, what, what is it doing? Were you speaking more generally or was there a specific application here? Because, you know, I, I just like to figure out, like, what is the clinical application in a device like that? And just just help our audience understand, like, what are these actually doing that's benefiting these patients? Yeah. So the device that we've developed now, so the acronym or the name of the device is FLASH. Uh, the FLASH pill specifically tries to target neurons in the stomach, or I guess I would say neuron slash hormonal signaling that starts in the stomach. And what we've shown is that essentially through application of electrical stimuli for as little as 20 minutes um, in the bottom portion of our stomach, 
you can see this significant uh, uh, increase in ghrelin levels in the blood. Ghrelin is a hunger-promoting hormone uh, that is released by the stomach and acts on a specific center in our brain to drive feeding behavior. Um, in animal models, if you inject ghrelin, the animals eat more. Uh, and that's actually been replicated in humans in a couple of clinical trials where we've done, like, not we, but others have done IV infusions of ghrelin to promote eating, for example, in patients with chemotherapy-induced nausea, so patients with cachexia, um, some patients with eating disorders such as anorexia or ARFID. Uh, and so those are the sort of initial targets that we are looking at in terms of situations where we might need to promote eating and refeeding. Thank you for that. That helps a lot. And how are you making sure, though, that the electrical stimulation is delivered at the right point? Is that, is that kind of where you have the battery dictate that, right? It runs out as it's passed further down the GI tract? Because it sounds like you probably are of a very specific area of the lower stomach that's your target. So this is, this is, you know, when I joked in the very beginning about how bioengineers are sort of, uh, you know, li a little knowledgeable about many things. So this is sort of the engineering approach of how we even started approaching this. It would obviously be extremely difficult to deliver this type of electrical stimuli with a pill if the location was, you know, right at the top of the stomach, you know, short of people doing handstands for 20 minutes. It's really difficult to sort of do, make the physics work that way. And so our entire focus in the beginning was, all right, where does this pill settle anyway? And then let's start looking at that specific area um, to see what are the, because there's a lot of other things to optimize besides location, right? You have to optimize what type of electrical parameters you're putting in, uh, what amplitude, frequency, um, and to what extent you engage with the mucosal surface. So in that sense, the location of this lower curvature of the stomach was a convenient and probably a little bit lucky choice that this is something that we've you know confirmed you can have this functionality with um the choice of the stomach is also sort of the probably the easiest place to target in the gut other than our mouth because things that we swallow will tend to sit in the stomach for at least 30 minutes uh, before being passed on um, since that we are assuming that these patients need to have more food um, ingested then you can kind of make the assumption that they are also fasted. And so therefore the stomach is free of other debris or gunk or things they might have otherwise eaten. So a lot of these assumptions sort of simplify the engineering a little bit. But certainly if you have to sort of flip this on its head and say, all right, well, now I want to do a similar thing, but you know, decrease eating. And then you can no longer make these fasted assumptions. You sort of have to go in and be able to have these devices navigate a very messy stomach that becomes more complicated. If you wanted to, you know, have it sit in the stomach for more than a couple of hours beyond what standard gastric residence time is, again, becomes very complicated. Uh, and then that's not even, you know, to mention, say that if we wanted to do the same thing in the intestine, how do we do that? Because there it becomes really difficult to have anything stay in place without causing an obstruction. Well, this is an aside, but there's something that just kind of came into mind. Have you ever thought about kind of the cattle industry it, it, it is where my head is going right now? Mm. You know, you're not allowed to use hormones, at least here in the United States. I'm not sure what the laws are in other countries to stimulate appetite or in particular kind of muscle growth. They used to give essentially cattle steroids uh, back in the day. We're no longer allowed to do that. But the goal was to accumulate muscle mass quickly in young cattle before you send them to market, because obviously that's more lucrative from an economics perspective. But appetite stimulation uh, is important, but you can't do it hormonally anymore. You can't uh, feed cattle that's for human consumption, uh, these hormones. So, you know, one thing that kind of came to mind is here's a non-hormonal or at least exogenous hormonal uh, way to to kind of potentially stimulate appetite. Now, I have no idea if the same appetite stimulating pathway exists in cattle. Obviously, they have different uh, biology than we do. But, um, you know, I, I, I wondered if, if, you know, what your animal models look like and if that was something you'd ever considered. That's a fascinating thought. I have not considered the cattle industry. Maybe an easier one to target than, than human trials. But <laughs> yeah, a lot easier. You get a, you get a lot of data points very quickly uh, if you could show that you put on uh, any mini mass for these animals at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's a little bit of an aside, but I thought I'd uh, give the give you that thought starter. Hopefully, that's helpful.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate it. I mean, we we've done some of these trials on 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 pigs, um, but they were by no means you know long term chronic weight gain studies. Yeah, no, I understand. That might be hard to do. It's doable. They're just really expensive, right? And 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 so from a from a you know NIH budgets kind of uh, approach, you need you need the different kinds of funding for that. Yeah, yeah. So want to be respectful of your time, and time has really flown by. So I was thinking maybe. We wrap up with a few last questions. Does that work? Although we could talk to you for another <laughs> 10 hours, <laughs> but I'm not sure how that works with your schedule today. <laughs> so Dr. Ramadi, it's been really, really fascinating to talk to you and we've just scratched the surface of bioengineering, but you mentioned that, you know, you're kind of playing in the sandbox and what you do sounds like incredible fun. We are always facing the shortage of engineers and, and people going to STEM fields. When you think about the next generation of bioengineers, what would you tell them in terms of what to expect, how the schooling goes, and then how they can maybe make the transition to somebody who can not only come up with innovation, but also find a path to commercialization? Because that's also important, right? We want to see tangible products that's come out of all of this great research. Is that something that you think is a challenge? Is that something that you have to think about regularly or is it well established? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? No, I, I do think that it's something that we need to do better. Like I'll, I'll just say that because the, again, as a field, so engineering sort of, if you think about engineering education, it is, kind of prescriptive right you 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 learn your different subjects you hopefully do well on them and then you go and apply it you know build this bridge uh build this building and then if you are um in other i would say more classic engineering fields uh if you're so curious as to go beyond what is currently done then you can sort of start developing your own theories tweaking what's been done instead of just applying what others have done and taught to you I think with bioengineering, that pipeline changes and the ratio of people who will be not only applying, but have to innovate on the go on whatever job they have, whether it's industry or academia, will be a lot higher. Um, and I think that's because if you look at the scope of what bioengineers learn in school, it is a lot smaller as a percentage of what the field is. Again, we started this discussion with like what, why the field bioengineering is. And so you know, it's inevitable that people in different programs with different professors will probably get different lenses on the same body of work, whether we like to be consistent or not. This is just something that will happen with programs. So I think, you know, in terms of thinking about what students, the next generation, like you said, of students should do, I would say is that it is really important to, aug to augment their traditional education with just exposing themselves to things outside of that. Right, whether it is going to talks and talking to colleagues that are not in their specific field, I think there's really a lot to learn from what others have done. And so I think I think that's one thing. And then the second thing I will say is I think as engineers we need to be more cognizant of what exactly is the problem we're trying to address. And this is as uh, as as people in lab will, will speak to. One of my pet peeves is engineering done for engineering's sake and not necessarily because there is a need and there's a role for basic research and sort of having fun and i'm as geeky as anyone else in terms of building cool tech but i really think that if i think about the most impactful projects i've been fortunate to work on they have all come from interactions with either physicians or patients or patients families and usually through random conversations where you're told you know oh this is how we do things And then you just kind of stop there and like, huh, that's, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would you do it that way? And then you, you scratch beneath the surface and very often find that there isn't no, that's just the way it's been done for 50 years. And so therefore no one's thought to question why it's done that way. So, I mean, it's not like someone's going to come and tell you the problem I have is X, but you sort of have to be on the lookout for where do I think that things can be improved. And hopefully we have some some budding uh, bioengineers in the audience, and uh, that was, I'm sure that's great <laughs> advice for them. But I'm going to ask you to to perhaps look in your crystal ball a little bit and try to predict for us what can we expect in 
you know, we'll, we'll establish a reasonable time frame here for you uh, in 10 years. What are your predictions for the new or, or most important areas of research besides just ingestibles <laughs> that you think are going to be notable? And then what's going to make it to market? Like what will we, if any, what will we see at our local or regional hospital or what will we see at the pharmacy potentially that would be characterized as a product of bioengineering? So, I mean, a couple of different things come to mind. And I mean, obviously there are so many answers to this, but I think some things that at least I've been excited about um, is one, if we think about our day-to-day, like you said, at the pharmacy, right? You go to CVS and what is different? I think we're going to see one, some more technology that allows us to diagnose on the spot in order to make treatment recommendations, right? And this is, I think, less a a factor in new drugs or new treatments, but rather part of this whole push towards decentralized care, um, you know, urgent care taken to an extreme where you, you know, you can do a couple of things just on the spot. One thing that I'm excited about is also this idea of personalizing care. And this is not exactly a new uh, fad or new term that's been thrown around. But, you know, one thing that I always think about is, we're all very different people. We're, you know, we're different sizes and shapes and colors. And, you know, but if you show up with a headache, we all take, what is it, 500 milligrams acetaminophen. Like, why do we, why do we all take that? Like, can we, can we personalize that further? And maybe Tylenol is not the, 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 the one to go after here. But in general, in terms of technologies that we can more appropriately dose drugs, I think that is, uh, is an area I'm really excited about. I think if we look higher level in terms of how we're going to interact with diseases, I mean, again, this is where the GLP-1 agonists have me cautiously optimistic. I think metabolic disease hopefully will look very different in 10 years than it does now. Honestly, if we look at neurologic disease, I'm not sure we're going to have that much different in 10 years versus now. That's the the cautiously pessimistic one, which is ironic given that's the space I work in. But still, I, I, I think there's cause for hope. I think that neurologic disease, if we fast forward maybe 20 years, maybe I think I'd be, I'd be more hopeful for that. Oh, good. I mean, that's all great news and obviously very hard to predict these things, but certainly seems to be trending in the right direction and, and gaining momentum, at least, you know, from an outsider's perspective, as I, you know, kind of see and hear what's going on out there. And, and hopefully we're going to get some acceleration and additional support and funding to, to, to continue to do this work, including the work that you're doing. So, really want to thank you for your time. This has been a fascinating area, one I didn't really know much about, and now I know at least a little bit more. <laughs> and I think our audience probably feels uh, the same way. Yes. And before we let you go, I would love to ask you one last question. Sure. Which is, so you are obviously a, a trailblazer, and we, we, we consider our po- podcast uh, a place where we can talk to people like you who really chart their own path. Is there a particular person or an event or something that has really helped you find your path? Something that inspires you in your work? Well, it's not so much, uh, okay, there's a, there is one event, um, which is not like, you know, a, a time and place, but it just happened on a phone call, um, on a Zoom call during COVID that I think reaffirmed a lot of these sort of convictions that I had. Um, so I'll give a bit of context. The so during COVID, I was part of a team that worked on you know we're all stuck at home basically, and so we instead tried to focus our our efforts on developing technologies to be able to safely split ventilators across multiple patients. From a clinical perspective, this is a huge no no. Uh, ventilators can save you; they can also kill you because blow your lungs out basically. Um, but from an engineering perspective, it's kind of like how do you ensure that your shower head has good pressure if you know your sister or brother turns on the shower in the other room right it's pretty much that sort of problem and so we uh uh started working on that and i remember some uh one zoom call that we had with some clinicians where we were just kind of sharing we showed that we did it on 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 animals and it worked well and we were sharing with some of these clinicians and just the, the comments were just like a stream of like, why this will not work. And I was like, man, this is a rough audience. I'm just like, guys, like, we're not saying that 
you know, this is the solution of the future, but people don't have any vents. Like we think we should like this can help something, right? And then, you know, fast forward a few months and we set up a nonprofit to, you know, so we, we, we published all this, put it up on a website for anyone to use. The idea was that this can hopefully be used in less developed settings even further down the line. Um, and, you know, got to the point of clinical testing with some partners in a couple of different countries around the world. And, you know, it's out there. And, but the fact that we actually managed to test it in patients and, you know, and had it work. And I look back at a lot of the sort of the handholding that we had to do clinically to overcome these objections. Like it really, you know, I think for a younger me slash just any of us, I think as we, uh, when we are younger, we don't respond very well to criticism because you're like, oh, well, you know, this person thinks my idea is crap. I, I'll give up here. Um, but I think that whole process really, you know, I have a screenshot of it because it was just so interesting to me, um, is, is a testament of how I think we really need to sometimes fight upstream against getting some of these technologies, even if you show that it works, um, to have it implemented. So I would say that is, you know, was kind of a formative moment in how you approach criticism and tease out the valuable feedback from the sort of more emotional negative connotation. That was a great example. I think you're referring to, uh, is it Project Prana Foundation? Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Would you like to tell uh, the audience how they can find out more information about that since you're involved and I think you're a board member? Yes, absolutely. So um, honestly, the easiest is to just Google Project Prana, P-R-A-N-A uh, Foundation, and there's a website that's set up the, that has a link to the publication, which is all open access and also has all the details that you know, you'd otherwise need, as well as contact information if you wanted to get in touch and are interested in this for any specific place to deploy it around the world. Um, we have some manufacturing partners. Um, any money that we raise usually goes towards building out a little bit of uh, supply, and then we basically send it to whoever needs it, along with training. Wonderful. And we'll put that link on the show page as well, for sure. Fantastic. Yeah, glad you had a chance to share that, and uh, we'll definitely look into that as well. Well, thanks for the time. Uh, this was the time flew by, but a really a fascinating conversation and great to meet you and really inspiring to hear about the work that you're doing. It's a lot of fun to think about you and other smart people like you working on, on these complex issues. We need more like you. Uh, so thank you for, for all that you're doing. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Ramadi. My pleasure. Thank you both. Ian and Nari, this is such a fun time. I really appreciate you guys taking the time and having me on. So that was such an interesting topic. I really feel like we barely covered anything. Um, we could have probably done 10 podcast sessions on this. I think we need to uh, really learn more about bioengineering, Ian. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what struck me is, and, and he made this point, I think we discovered this in the conversation, bioengineering can mean so many different things and trying to cover something that broad I think is a challenge. And of course, we were able to kind of focus in a little bit on neuromodulation and the adjustables, which was really fascinating technology. But there's, as you said, so many other things that we could have explored. So maybe this is something we revisit in the future. But I'm really excited just to see the direction of the technology. And I think the pace that, that we're seeing some of these advancements seems like it's in the news, you know, more and more, at least in kind of in the healthcare world. That's a really positive thing. As he said, he was very hopeful about what the future looks like. And, you know, I think his enthusiasm is certainly infectious because it gets you excited about, you know, offering new solutions for patients that, that we just don't have today. Yeah, I think even for neuromodulation, he, he kind of mentioned that that's even a broad field where there's not necessarily consensus on where it begins and where it ends. But thinking about life expectancy increasing globally and neurodegenerative diseases also increasing in, 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 in frequency and in, in prevalence and incidence. I'm really curious to see, will we make more progress here? His timelines were a little further out on that, right? You know, he was, <laughs> I know. He was hopeful for 20 years. <laughs> it's a race against time. <laughs> We'd love for that to be more like five years, but you yeah. know, at least, at least he's hopeful. Better late than never, but there's going to be such a huge need. I mean, there is a huge need already. And uh, it would be nice to see more advances there that complement just the therapeutic advances that hopefully we will continue to make as well. But that was one area that I would like to learn more about specifically. Well, we'll have him back on in the future and we could definitely fill another hour 
with Khalil, really nice guy. And, you know, I just love his style, great communicator. And, um, you know, we'll have additional resources that, that he shared with us in the show notes. If there's anything that you'd like to have additional information on, you can find it there as well as information on uh, Project Prana that he mentioned as well. And I think so far, I feel like we, we should bring every guest back. I feel like we ran out of time with everybody and there's so much more to cover. Well, the audience can tell us if they'd like a three-hour podcast next time, but we'll see, uh, we'll see what everybody's <laughs> opinion is on that. <laughs> That's right. Tell us what you think. Exactly. Yeah. The feedback, always welcome. We do read all the comments. All right. Another great podcast. Thanks, Nari. And I look forward to the next one. Thanks, Ian. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at realpharma.co for more valuable resources. Real Pharma is brought to you by Black Canyon Ventures. Thank you.